0: Psalm number 7 tonight is going to be our passage of concentration. Psalm number 7. Last week we saw how to pray when we are guilty before God, when God is disciplining us. Remember in Psalm 6, David says, Do not rebuke me. Do not chasten me. Do not discipline me in your wrath. And he acknowledges a sin before God. And so we see how to pray to God when we're guilty before God. This week, David's not guilty but innocent. And so this week we're going to see how to pray when we are innocent before God. Psalm number seven, this psalm is an individual lament by David, as you see in the superscription there. Again, the last four, five from Psalm three to Psalm seven are all these individual laments. That is, he, he is sorrowful about something. He describes his sorrow over something to God. And then it automatically or always, inevitably is probably the word I'm looking for, inevitably turns into what? Trust. It goes from sorrow to trust. From mourning to trusting in God. God, I trust You that You're going to do what is best for me. And so we'll see this again here. See if you can see the transition here in Psalm number 7. I'll read it for us beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. O Lord my God, in You I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or He will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him, who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life down to the ground. Lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared himself uh, for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows, "...fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High." The godly the godly per- person, the righteous person, can confidently turn to God for deliverance from trouble. The godly person can confidently turn to God for deliverance from trouble. We're going to see that David here is threatened by danger. And he is innocent of the threats or the danger that's coming upon him. That is, he didn't bring it upon himself because of some sin that he had committed. But rather he is innocent before God and before his accusers. And he turns in confident expectation to God in prayer that he would be rescued from these threats of danger. And what we ought to see is that we also can be like David and confidently go to God in times of trouble when we are innocent before God for the 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 harm that is coming upon us or that is threat, threatening us. So number one, the godly are threatened with danger in verses 1 and 2. The godly are threatened with danger. David finds himself in trouble again. Last time we saw that the trouble was brought upon himself really because he was being disciplined by the loving hand of God. This time it's coming from apparently one of Saul's relatives. Look in the superscription again um, in, in Psalm number 7. Uh 7 a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush a Benjamite. Now remember, these little words here underneath the psalm number are not inspired. They're not written by the Holy Spirit through um, the author of Scripture. But rather, um, they're added in there for an explanation of what the psalm is about. So we can take them as truth, but not inspired by God. So not as authoritative, uh, if that makes sense. They're probably truth, but we're we're not sure that well we're confident that the Holy Spirit did not inspire them to be a part of the original documents, parts of the original Scripture. But if it is true that what is being said about this Psalm, then it is written by David, and that he's concerned about his enemy here, a Benjamite. Now, a Benjamite was someone obviously who came from the tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Israel, and one of those men was King Saul. I remember, King Saul was. David's enemy for quite some time, until his death really. And according to this superscription, David is being pursued by one of Saul's relatives. And so David, in his time of desperation, calls out to God for help, which is what we ought to do. And he says, O Lord, spare me from the danger or the threat of my enemies. In verse 1, O Lord, my God, in You I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. And if not, David pictures himself like a helpless animal being dragged away by a lion, like a sheep or some other kind of animal that's that's the that's the uh, the, the food for the lion. It, David pictures himself like that to his enemies, being taken in the mouth of his enemies and dragged away to be eaten, to be overcome. And the fact that this enemy is successful is terrifying to David. And if you think about David in his position, if this is going on, which it likely is during the time of his kingship, it suggests something about how powerful this enemy was. David, the king of Israel, one of the most powerful countries at that time, in that area at least, and, and had a huge army at his disposal, and he's being carried away by his enemies as if he's just a small, helpless animal. So David, threatened by danger, immediately goes to God in prayer, begging for help. The godly are often threatened with danger. Number two, the godly can appeal to God on the basis of their innocence. We can appeal to God on the basis of our innocence. Verses three through nine. We see his innocence in verses uh, the first few verses here. Verses three through five. Oh Lord, my God, if I have done this. If there's injustice in my hands, if if I have rewarded evil to my friend or plundered him without cause, then verse five, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. In Psalm six, David seemed to be admitting his guilt. He asked God in verse one, "Stop chastening me." He begged that he would receive favor, undeserved favor, grace from God. That is, I don't deserve it because of how I've acted. And therefore, give me the favor that I don't deserve. That's what he said in Psalm 6. Here in Psalm 7, he appeals to his own innocence. He's so, confident of his, he's so confident of this innocence that he's willing to die if he were found to be guilty. That is, God, you can try me before your court. You can search my heart and see if I've done anything against these who are against me. And if I am found guilty then notice what he says in verse 5. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. That is, let him kill me. Look at the end of the verse. And lay my glory in the dust. In other words, let me sleep in the dust. Let me die and be put into the dust. That's the idea. Let me go back to where I came. If I am guilty... Then, then allow them to overtake me. Allow them to kill me. That's how confident he was in his innocence in this situation. And I think this is pointed out for us so clearly in this text because we need to know how to pray before God when we are innocent before God, when we are being attacked from something that was not our of our doing. Okay? Maybe it's some physical ailments, maybe it's some financial difficulty, maybe it's some personal struggle. Sometimes we bring those things upon ourselves. You know, if we're eating unhealthily or not taking care of our body, we can bring on health problems ourselves. Maybe we can bring on personal problems by sowing discord among other people. We can bring on financial problems by not being wise, but apparently here David is has these problems coming on him, not because he sowed that, that is, whatever you sow, you will reap, but rather that, that that this was not brought upon him by something that he had done. Notice the claims that were being made against him. Verse 3 at the end, it says, if there is any any injustice in my hands. So the first claim against him is that he was being unjust, apparently with these enemies. Number two, Is found in verse 4, and that is uh, that he paid vengeance to a friend. That if he rewarded evil, that he betrayed a friend. That was the second claim against him. And the third claim is found at the end of verse 4, and that is that he had taken advantage of an innocent citizen. If I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, if I've made somebody into an enemy who didn't deserve to be my enemy, so, this is what they're suggesting, that I am unjust, that I've paid vengeance to a friend, that I've betrayed a friend of mine, that I've taken advantage of someone innocent. But here's what I'm telling you, God. And you know my heart. I haven't done any of these things. And if I have, allow them to take my life. Allow it to happen all the way. Uh, allow them to go all the way where they want to go. And So, here's what he does. After acknowledging his innocence, okay, not in a proud way, but just just saying what is true before God, then he appeals to God on the basis of that innocence in verses 6-9. through In this psalm, his sorrow quickly turns to trust in God. And this is where we see the psalm change. Remember, it's always in these lament psalms. Remember, half of the psalms in your Bible are lament psalms, about half. Uh, I think it's a little bit less than 70 are lament psalms. So most of them... Uh, or the, I guess the um, the largest portion of psalms, if they're breaking down into categories, are lament psalms. And we should be looking for this when we come across them. It turns from sorrow to trust. Here it is, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in Your anger. Lift up Yourself against the rage of My adversaries and arouse, your, arouse Yourself for Me. You have appointed judgment. In verse 6, David uses three verbs to appeal to God's sovereign power over His circumstances. Do you see those? What are the three verbs? First, it is arise, O Lord, in your anger. Then the second, lift up yourself. And then the third, arouse. Arouse yourself for me. Literally, God, stand up, lift yourself up, awake yourself. Wake up. And, and act on my behalf. Now, this is not a... This is not, a, um, a, a, an, this is not a, an irreverent prayer that, that David is making. It's not that God is asleep. That's not what David is saying. The point is that God has been treating David as if God were asleep. That is, God hasn't been acting with favor on David even though he has been innocent. He has been walking righteously before God. And so David calls out to God Making an appeal like we would make to our father, it's not a command, okay whenever you see these these commands with in prayer, that's not a bad thing we We do this sort of thing all the time. Lord, please bless so and so please help this situation. This is a plea. this is what David's doing. It's not a command. You must do this, no. Because of your authority and your sovereign power over all things, I am appealing to you as my Father, as the God of the universe, get up and and act for the glory of your name. Okay, So don't think of this as an irreverent thing that David's doing. David's appeal continues in verse 7. He says, Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Gather witnesses on the earth. David, come down from your throne. Come down from your throne and judge these false accusers and then turn up, turn back and go on high. That's the idea. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you. All these enemies of mine that are encompassed around me, you come down as judge. Judge them and vindicate me and then go back to your throne. Return back to on high. That's the idea here in verse 7. Notice the motivation that David gives to God to act. Again, this is a great thing to do when you're praying. Give God motivation for why he ought to do something. Why? Is God passive? No. It's that we ought to be concerned about the things God is concerned about, and God takes pleasure when we show him that we understand why he ought to do this. Okay, and I gave the example last week of, you know, asking to see someone through the ministry of our church saved. God, what are people going to think about our church if they don't see a person saved through our ministry? If people are not being gathered for the sake of Your glory? How will that affect Your name, God? See, So for the sake of Your glory, please work in our hearts and use us to accomplish Your purpose and bring someone else to Christ. You see how we give Him motivation to accomplish what he already wants to do. That's a good thing. And here David does the same thing. Why should why should God act on David's behalf and protect him from his enemies? Verses 8 and 9. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord. That is, show, show them that I am just. According to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me, O oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous for... The righteous God tries the hearts and mind. David is very wise here in his prayer to God. First, he shows his innocence. Even though false accusations have been leveled against me, and I stand really in court as a defendant before you, God. You know what's right. Why look at the end of verse 9? Because you know the minds and the hearts. You know my mind and heart. You know their mind and heart. And so... God, come to my aid and treat me as I deserve in this case. Remember last week, Psalm number 6, it was treat me as I don't deserve. I deserve to be condemned. So give me favor. Here, David's saying treat me as I do deserve. I've been following You. I've been righteous. I haven't turned on these people who are now my enemies. God, You are all wise. This is how we go before God. When we are innocent... We are happy to ask God to search our hearts. When was the last time that you asked God to search your heart? Okay. The things we talked about this morning, you know, the, the various sins that we need to be laying aside and the various things that we ought to be putting on because of our position in Christ, could you go before God and say, search my heart and bring to the surface what is what is evil within me? Help me to see what you see in me. Now that doesn't say that we're innocent before God. That just shows our transparency with God, that we understand who He is. He already knows our hearts, and He wants us to see ourselves as He already sees us. And wouldn't that be a great way to pray? The problem is, we don't often pray like David does here, because we are harboring so much sin in our hearts, aren't we? And it keeps us from being honest with ourselves and with God about our own sin. We don't want sin to come to the... You know, we already got enough sin that we're dealing with. And if we ask God to show us even more everything, show me my hidden faults, David prayed another place, how much more work are we going to have to do? But when we recognize that God already does search and know our hearts, to ask Him to reveal to us what He already knows is actually a good and humble thing to do. David does this here in verse 9. Lord, You know the hearts. You know my heart. In this case, I believe I'm innocent. But if I'm not, please show me. Please show me. So, number one, the godly are threatened with danger. Number two, the godly can appeal on behalf, on the basis of their own innocence. And then number three, the confidence of the godly is strengthened by a reminder of God's justice. The confidence of the godly is strengthened by a reminder of God's justice. Here is one of the purposes that God has us to pray. It's not to change God's heart necessarily, although I believe that God does, I believe that God does work in line with how we pray. That is his purposes line up with how we are praying according to His desires, so our prayers are not ineffective. Ineffective, in fact, James five says the prayer of an effectual righteous man availeth much. That is, when we are fervently praying to God, it actually does something. So don't ever think that you know my prayers aren't really doing anything. God and His sovereignty can work through human prayers. But one of the other things that prayer does for us is it helps to remind us about who God is. When we're trying to line up our prayers with what God wants us to to see, then we often think about God in the light that we ought to think about Him. And in this case, David sees God's justice. And it helps bolster his confidence to pray to God and to ask for these things. Look at verse 10. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God's righteousness brings confidence to the godly. My shield is with you, God. Literally, my shield is upon God or my shield rests upon God. And what does God do? He saves the upright in heart. He saves them. David can appeal to God on the basis of his strength. That is God's strength and God's goodness because he knows that God will look with favor on the godly. Why would God look with favor on the godly? We have all sorts of texts in Scripture that help us to see that this is the people who God wants to look with favor on, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay? People who are godly, who recognize their position before God. This is David. God's goodness, God's justice is often seen most clearly in the lives of the godly then verses 11 through 13 God's righteousness requires that he hates evil. David starts to understand this. God's righteousness requires that he hates evil. In verses 11 through 13 David continues to appeal to God's goodness and God's righteousness. First he says in verse 11 that God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Now why would this matter to David's current problem. What was David's problem? Remember he has this threat of danger of his enemies who are about to attack who are apparently encompassed all around him and he's praying that that threat is removed. Why would God's righteousness matter? And the point is that God God hates unrighteousness. God hates the wicked. Psalm 5 said, that God hates evil. He hates the evil ones. And so the fact that God is righteous means that He does care about what's happening to David. Notice how clear this is at the end of verse 11. A God who has indignation or wrath every day. Now, what over what? Indignation every day over what? Over sin and evil, right? Have you ever been tempted to think That God overlooks evil? And that in your case, He doesn't really care if you suffer at the hand of your enemies. He doesn't really care if you go through this trial or not. And this this verse tells us that whatever type of opposition you're facing from evil people or even evil beings, Satan and demons, that God every day hates that sort of activity and those beings. And so God's unchanging nature should bring us hope as believer as believers. That God is not fickle, you know, up and down with how well things are going in the world. Wow, that really went south. I wasn't expecting that. No, God recognizes and sees more evil than we even understand. He knows it all. And that, verse 11, He burns with indignation every single day about that evil. Believer, what kind of evil is being done to you right now in your life? Do you think God cares about it? And the text of Scripture tells us emphatically, yes, He does. And therefore, verses 12 and 13, the enemies don't stand a chance. They are in a very dangerous place. Look at verse 12. If a man does not repent... He will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Okay, so notice, if a man does not repent, who do you think David is talking about there in general? These enemies that are threatening him, right? So if a man, if one of these enemies does not repent, then who is going to sharpen his sword? The enemy? No, it's God. Look at the text. In the New American Standard, he there in, in the first line of verse 1. If a man does not repent, he... Is that capital or lowercase? Yes. Capital. So what does that tell us? This is referring to God. Okay, this is Obviously, they didn't have capital letters in the Hebrew language, just so you know. But the New American Standard is helping us to understand what they think the intention of the writer of Scripture is here. And I think they're right. Okay, Think about this now in terms of what David is saying. If a man does not repent, one of my enemies... He, God, will sharpen His sword. God has bent His bow. He's brought it back and made it ready. He's also prepared for Himself deadly weapons. He makes His arrows fiery shafts. And then notice the, the pronouns turn to lowercase. In verse 14, Behold, He travails with wickedness, and He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, speaking of the enemies, and has fallen into the hole which He made. The enemies of David are in a very dangerous place. Believer, the enemies of you are in a very dangerous place if they do not repent. Why? Because we have a righteous God who burns with indignation every day over evil, and He's ready to act. He's ready to. He's got his bow drawn back. He's ready to fire his his uh, his arrow at them. This is a huge problem. We don't want to be on that side of God's wrath, do we? God's anger burns every day, but this anger will be mobilized into action against those who do not repent. Those who have an unjustified pursuit against God's godly servants like David. If they have an unjust pursuit against us who are godly, then they are in a dangerous place and God could act at any time and bring down judgment upon them. The confidence of the godly is strengthened by a reminder of justice. God's righteousness, because God is righteous, it demands that He acts. He, can't, he cannot let evil go unpunished. Do you realize that? He cannot let evil go unpunished. And that's what David's talking about in verses 14-16. through 16. Verse 14, Behold, he travails, that is the enemy, travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. Now, Our expectation of God should always be that He acts justly all the time. He hates evil all the time. He always does what is right. Now we might not like the timing of God's justice. That means that we would rather see Him do it at a different time. Rather than wait, we'd rather see Him do it now. But here's what we need to think about when we think about God's justice. Genesis eighteen twenty-five. Does not the King of the universe always do what is right? Does not God always do what is right? And the implied answer is yes, He always does. Specifically, God's going to take the plans of the wicked here in verses 14 and 16 and turn them back upon themselves. First, the illustration of conception and birth in, verses, in verse 14. Here, the wicked become pregnant with an evil plan, but when the evil is born, so to speak, it's not what they expected. In fact, the evil is turned back upon them. Then there's an illustration of digging a pit, right? Right? It's like they're digging their own grave, right? They dig a pit. It's supposed to be a trap for the righteous or the godly. And what happens? They fall into their own pit. And then third, the illustration of a trap. Verse 16. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. Now, I've actually never heard that word before reading this passage. Anybody have an idea what pate is? Let me just help you. Uh, first place to look whenever you have a word that's unfamiliar to you is to go to the margin of your Bible. Look in the margin of your Bible under verse 16 and see if there's another word for pate. Okay, That's the first place you go. When you're going through your Bible and you come across a word that you don't understand, remember, the goal is to know God and to know His Word. So don't just breeze through it and say, well, that's nice. But go to the margin of your Bible. It also often tells you what it means. And why it's Uh, margin, it says the crown of his own head. But another place you can go, if you don't have an explanation there in the margin of your Bible, the second place I would encourage you to go is to another translation. Does anybody have another translation that says something other than pate that would help us? What do you have? The very last word. Okay, so you have an English Standard Version? So, his own skull. See, so you go to another translation and remember these people are usually translating from the same types of manuscripts and they're just coming up. What's that? Oh, I thought I heard something. Um, So they're usually just come up with their own understanding or their own explanation of it. And there's lots of different ways that we can say the same thing. Well, the new American standard uses the word pate, which again, I, I hadn't heard. You might have known that right away, but so the first place you go, I would suggest, is to your margin. Second place you go is to another translation. And then third would probably be helpful is to go to another study Bible. Okay, Some, some of you had I've seen your, your Bibles, you have a study Bible. So there's notes often that give a further explanation. That would be a helpful way to go as you're reading through Scripture. Remember, when you're reading through Scripture, don't mindlessly just scan your eyes over the page. There's nothing magical about opening up this book that's made of, of a tree and scanning your eyes over it, it's not going to do anything magical to you. The, the way that it changes us is when we understand it and start thinking about it in terms of God's thoughts and then doing it. That's how it changes us. So, so that's what I want to encourage you as you study in, in uh, your personal study, personal reading through the Scriptures. So God's going to take their plans, verses 14-16, through 16, and turn them back on them. If you want to think of a kind of silly illustration, it's kind of like the enemies of David are wily coyote, right? He sets all these traps for the roadrunner, but they always turn back and fall on him. In this case, the same thing is true—that that they're setting all these traps and expecting their opponent to fall into these traps, and they always end up falling back on them. And th- again, we don't—we may not like the timing of this. We want to see sometimes our enemies. Receive the judgment of God now. But let me just be clear that this will be most obvious at the final judgment. The judgment and destruction that they wanted to see fall on David will ultimately be like an anvil on their own head. I mean, think of Haman who longed to destroy Mordecai and even had a giant gallows built for him. But it wasn't Mordecai that hung on that gallows, was it? It's finally Haman himself. And so we don't have to fear that God is somehow unconcerned about evil or that He's unconcerned about us and the danger that is threatening us. We can be confident in God's justice and God's righteousness and that He will judge them in His time. And that should turn into confident expression of trust in God through praise. Verse 17, we ought the godly express their trust in God through confident praise. The godly express their trust in God through confident praise. The text says there, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. David understood something. God is faithful, God is righteous, God is just, He hates evil, and so I don't know how this is going to turn out. I haven't seen you judge my enemies yet, but I'm going to respond to you with confident praise. Here's how Alan Ross explains verse 17, comment, commentator on, on the Psalms. He says, As the righteous anticipate how the Lord will vindicate them by destroying the wicked in their own evil plots, their petitions, that is the, righteous, the petitions of the righteous, turn into anticipatory praise. That is, they anticipate that it's, they're going to be able to praise God. And notice, it's still anticipated because the petition has not been granted yet. David hasn't seen anything, but he trusts the Lord for his vindication. This is what it means to trust in God. That is, that we don't know the outcome. We don't know how it's going to turn out next week, next year, to our enemies. But we confidently praise God that, hey, this is all under your control, God. I'm going to do my part and remain innocent, remain walking uprightly. And I'm going to turn to you in confident praise, knowing that you will do what is best, that you will ultimately judge because you hate evil and you are a righteous and faithful God. Last week we saw that when we are in trouble because of our own sin, because of discipline, we must call out to God in prayer. This week we see that when we are in trouble, not because of our sin, but when we're innocent, then we still must call out to God in prayer. So here's the common theme. Very simple. When we are in trouble, whether guilty or innocent, we call out to God in prayer. Believer, this ought to be a regular mark in your life, a clear mark in your life. You call out to God in prayer in times of trouble. Understand that that God is is burning with indignation every day against evil that is in your world. He knows about it. And He cares about it. And He cares about you. Wouldn't it be a good thing for you and I to talk to Him about that evil that's threatening us? Wouldn't it be a good thing for us to go to God and pray about these things? Let me give you a few points of application, and then um, I want to close with one reading of a longer section of Scripture. Number one, righteous living does not guarantee visible success. Righteous living does not guarantee visible success. Don't be deceived into thinking that your righteousness will equate with visible success. Good health. You know, plenty of finances to go around. Good people and good relationships. See, David was living righteously, innocently here, and yet he's being attacked. His enemies didn't have a legitimate excuse against him or a legitimate reason to accuse him, but they did anyway. So what I'm telling you and I remind you often is that righteous living doesn't automatically equate with visible success in this life. Number two, when you pray, appeal to God's justice. Another way to put it is, give God motivation to answer your prayer. Not that He doesn't know anything. Remember, when we pray to God, He already knows what we're going to ask before we ask Him. But give Him motivation. Why would God want to answer your request? Why should He want to? Appeal to His justice. Acknowledge the things that God already knows. God, You are righteous. And I know that You will vindicate the righteous and that You will punish all evil, that You have indignation, righteous indignation over evil every single day and that You are the King of the earth and that You always do what is right. And I recognize that Your justice may not be carried out in the timing that I want to see, but I pray on the basis of Your goodness and wisdom and righteousness that You would act on Your behalf and on mine. Appeal to God's justice when you pray. Number three, walk uprightly. Or we could say, continue to walk uprightly. Do you realize that it's easier to go to God when you are innocent than when you are guilty? Now please don't be discouraged to go to God when you're guilty. Do that. When you're in trouble, go to God. When you're guilty, go to Him. He wants to hear from you. Recognize you can still walk and be bold before God on the basis basis of Christ's righteousness. But when you're innocent, it's so much easier, isn't it? You have nothing to fear when God shines the light of His glory into your life. When you say to God, God, search my heart. Because I want to see where I've failed you. I want you to draw to the surface. Not that we will ever be perfect, you understand what I'm saying, but it's so much easier. Just think about your parents when you're growing up. Is it easier to go to talk to them about a situation when you are guilty or when you're innocent? Okay so walk uprightly and, and it will do wonders for your prayer, your prayers to God. We often hide in the darkness when we are full of guilt and go to God when you're guilty, but go to God when you're innocent. Number four the final judgment will remove all doubt. I said earlier, number two, that righteous, li- or number one, righteous living does not guarantee visible success in this life. But be sure, Christian, that the final judgment will remove all doubt. Believer, you may be fogged over with the wrong ideas about God and his intentions in this current trial that you're going through. You may be confused completely as to why evil seems to prosper and why the righteous suffer. But I can assure you on the authority of the Word of God that on the day of judgment, it will be crystal clear who is on the Lord's side. There will be no questioning God's justice. There will be no questioning whether you are innocent or not. That is, whether you are on God's side or not. It will be clear who is going to be condemned. It will be clear who has life and who will experience eternal torment. It will be clear who is in Christ and who is out turn to revelation chapter 20 revelation chapter 20 see it's very confusing at this time because it seems like the righteous are prospering and the are the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering and it doesn't seem to make sense but what i want to do is read several sections here from the end of revelation so that you see that it's going to be very clear on the day of judgment that righteous living guarantees visible success in the next life. It doesn't look like visible success in this life, but it will be clear on that day who is on God's side and who is not. Revelation 20, verse 11. Listen for the clarity between the righteous and the the wicked in the end times. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the, book, in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among you, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these things, these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Skip down to verse 11. Speaking of the glory of God here, the next line says Her brilliance, or, or the New Jerusalem, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels, and names are written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out like a square. Let's skip down to verse 23. After he describes what it looks like, I saw, uh, excuse me, verse 23, and the city has no need for the sun or for the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then skip down to verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. But let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away His part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Believer, on the last day, it will not be like it is today. It seems as if there is injustice abounding and that God doesn't care about evil. But at the time of judgment, when judgment has passed and the new earth has come, it will be clear who is on the Lord's side. So keep your focus on that. Don't get your mind off of that. Keep trusting in God and turning to Him in times of trouble. It may not be clear now, but it will be. Pray. Lord, we mimic the words of John here at the end of Revelation. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. End this life of struggle by sending Your Son, sending Jesus to, to take us to be with Him forever. Lord, we groan in these bodies of sin, these minds of sin. We want to shed them and replace them, have them replaced with glorified bodies. We know that that will happen at the resurrection of church saints which will take place at the rapture. So we pray that Jesus comes quickly. Father, give us strength to stand up in the midst of trial. We know that we can't know when that day will be. We wish it were today. But help us to trust You until that time and to be working, to be watching and waiting, not passively, but actively obeying You and trusting You and encouraging other people to do the same. Use us to call people out of this dying world for Your namesake. Help us to evangelize, to to share the Gospel with them. And help us to encourage one another in our growth toward godliness. Our commission for for the church has been given to us by Jesus our Savior. And it is that we would make disciples of this church and of all nations. And that we would teach them everything that Christ has commanded us. And we are not there yet. We We haven't taught Every Christian in this church, everything that Christ has commanded, we're constantly learning. And So we pray that You'd help us to be valiant for our task, that we'd be up and ready for our task. Help us to encourage those who are surrounded by the threat of danger. Use us as conduits of Your grace to strengthen their faith and to see them have a greater desire to see You honored through this trial. Lord, You know the hearts of us as a church. And we pray that You would search our hearts, know us today, see if there be any wicked way in us. And if there there is, please bring it to the surface so that we can deal with it. As Christians, we don't like to see our sin. We don't like to think about our sin. But we do like to turn from our sin because we know that with You, God, there is forgiveness. And there is cleansing. And We want that more than anything. We want to be cleansed from our sin. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.